The Gist is sponsored by Goldman Sachs. Information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by Realty Shares. With Realty Shares, you can invest in professionally vetted residential and commercial real estate projects across the United States. Browse all investments at no cost once you're qualified. Invest as little as $1,000 per transaction and diversify your portfolio by visiting realtyshares.com slash gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, October 29th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I will now give you the low moment of last night's Republican debate and possibly the low moment of American civic life. Well, first of all, um, I'm 7-0 and in my fantasy football league. <laughs> oh, my God. There is nothing more boring than bragging about your fantasy football team. Well, maybe there is. It's being named Jeb Bush and bragging about your fantasy football record. Oh, and it gets worse. Jeb delved into the specifics. Gronkowski is still going strong. I have Ryan Tannehill, Marco, as my quarterback. He was 18 for 19 last week. Oh, Ryan Tannehill, whoop-de-damn-do. He's the eighth-best quarterback in fantasy this year. If you want to be a great quarterback, you got to have a great quarterback. Not number eight, not some guy two behind Blake Bortles. I say to you, Jeb Bush, in certain polls, two behind Ted Cruz. Ryan Tannehill. Ryan Tannehill is great. I mean, PolitiFact gave that its lowest rating for Mante Teos. Basically, having done fantasy football in the past should be like having smoked pot in the past. You don't have to deny it, but for God's sake, be a little apologetic. I drafted, but I did not enjoy. I played it, but I never played it on American soil, only in Curacao. Chris Christie got upset that they even asked about fantasy football. So here's Carl, are we really this? talking about getting we the have government, a government involved in fantasy football? Yeah. Now, I know GOP faithful said right on Christie and close political observers know that Christie's trying to get legalized internet gambling throughout New Jersey. But here's what I said when I heard that. I said to myself, now there's a guy who wasted a first round draft pick on Des Bryant. That's why I think Christie was kicked off that quiet car, that Amtrak quiet car. He was desperately trying to flip Des Bryant for Odell Beckham in a PPR league. Anyway, when you think about it, booking Chris Christie a seat on the quiet car is like asking... 10 egomaniacs to divulge a weakness. But I do believe that I share a sense of optimism for America's future that today is eroding from too many of our people. Well, John, I don't really have any weaknesses that I can think of. Where I see the weakness in those three people that are left on the Democratic stage. I find it very, very hard to forgive people that deceived me. So on the show today, I will spiel about the GOP debate, more about it. I will focus on a very specific non-policy-oriented trend, maybe even a tick. In fact, it was contained in the answers you just heard given by Chris Christie and Donald Trump. So you'll want to stick around for that. Or because this is a podcast, you'll want to fast forward to it. But don't. Don't do that. I compel you to listen to this next interview. It's with Matt Dix. He's going to tell us a story and give us a lesson. The story is wild. The lesson, fundamental stakes. You know, when you tell a story, try to have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. So I said Steve Martin in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. But point is nice, but stakes are what keeps the listener riveted as you tell the story. Well, joining me now is our storytelling companion, Matthew Dix. He's a winner of multiple Moth Story Slams. Hello, Matt. Hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm good. So I guess I kept the listeners interested with those 
don't know, 25 seconds of palaver. But at this point, if I don't have stakes, people are going to start tuning out. You're right. Yeah. As good as your story is, yeah. if you don't have something to want them to hear the next sentence, you're going to lose them. But it seems extra hard in nonfiction storytelling. The stakes are the stakes. You can't invent them. So what do you do? So every story should have overarching stakes. Yeah. Sort of a beginning to end, there's something at stake. But it's in the middle of the story, as you're, as you're crafting sentence by sentence, that you're going to create these mini stakes. I think of them as hills. So you build a hill in your story, and when you build a hill, your listener wants to hear what's on the other side. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you put a hill in the story. Those are what my tricks are. And it forces you over the hill to the backside of the, to see what's on the other side. Oh, cool. So those are tricks. So give me an example. All right. So if you're a listener, you've heard, uh, you've heard me mention this story before, and I've given you like a broad outline of it, but I'm going to tell it in detail because it's in the details that you can get the stakes of this story. Right. All right. So uh, here's my story. It's 1991. I'm 19 years old. I'm 100 miles from home, driving on a lonely stretch of New Hampshire Highway. I'm coming home from the very first booty call of my life. And I am excited because I don't realize that it is also going to be the very last booty call of my entire life. And it's in this moment of excitement that the right front tire of my 1976 Chevy Malibu blows out. But it doesn't just deflate, it disintegrates in a way that I don't realize tires can do. It like throws rubber and wire all over the road, and it takes everything I've got to pull the car over to the side of the road and to bring it to a stop. It's 1991, I don't have a cell phone, I don't have a spare tire, and I haven't seen anyone on this stretch of road for a long time. So I get out of my car and I start hiking back up the highway to the nearest exit to see if I can find some help. Six and a half hours later, after having given all of the cash in my pocket to a half-naked mountain man named Winston in exchange for a balding spare tire, I am back on the road, heading home and feeling good when I look at my instrument panel and I notice that I am out of gas. And I don't have a credit card. Debit cards don't even exist yet. I don't have any money in my pocket. And it's 1991. There's no cell phone. And so I take the next exit, and I roll myself into a sit-go station. And as I bring the car to a stop, I'm upset and I'm annoyed because I'm 19 years old. I'm a McDonald's manager. I'm making $6.25 an hour, and I am the richest person that I know. My mother is living on welfare with my pregnant teenage sister. I haven't seen my father in a decade. My brother has gone off to the military. We haven't heard from him in three years. There is no one at home who actually has a car that can make the 100-mile drive to pick me up and get me out of trouble here. The only person in the world who could possibly help me is my best friend, Benji. And Benji goes to college. And in 1991, if you want to call somebody, you have to know the telephone number of a phone on a wall somewhere. And that person has to actually be standing next to the wall at the moment of the ring in order to communicate with him. And he's at some retreat somewhere, so I don't know where he is. And I'm just thinking that I'm 19 and I'm not supposed to be so alone at 19. I'm not supposed to be stuck 100 miles from home with not a single person in my life to call for help. But that's where I am. So I make a plan, and it's a simple plan. I'm going to go inside the gas station, and I'm going to beg for gas. I need about $8 worth of gas because it's 1991, and gas is 85 cents a gallon, and 8 bucks will get me home. So I go into the gas station, and there's a kid behind the counter. He's a little younger than me. I tell him my problem. I offer him everything in my pockets and everything in my car as collateral. I tell him I'll come back and triple his money if he'll just give me enough gas to get home. But he refuses. He's afraid to lose his job. So I go back to my car, and uh, I'm going to wait, I decide. I'm going to wait for that kid to go off shift, for someone else to come on, and to improve my pitch, 
get, beg gas from the next guy. But as I'm getting into my car, I see my crumpled McDonald's uniform in the back seat, and I have an idea. Half an hour later, I'm standing on a porch in front of a little brick house with a blue door. I'm wearing my McDonald's uniform. It's the, the blue shirt, the blue pants. I've got the gold name badge with my name on it. And I've got a briefcase with a big gray M on it. I'm like holding it up in front of me like a shield. And I am knocking on that blue door. When the door swings open, there's a man standing in front of me. He's 50, but he's like 500. He's like one of those guys you meet and you know that they know everything. They have like all the wisdom of the world wrapped up into them. And I can look at him and I know that he knows that what I'm about to do is a terrible thing. But it's a Sunday afternoon. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm wearing a McDonald's uniform on his porch. And it's one of those moments where you have to go through with your plan no matter what. And so I say to him, Hi, my name's Matt, and I'm collecting money for Ronald McDonald Children's Charities. And this man does not move. He is like Stonehenge, like he has always been here waiting for me. And the next words I say, I don't even expect them to come out. I say, my mom died of cancer when I was a little boy, and now my sister's dying of cancer, and I'm just trying to do whatever I can to help. And he doesn't move. He just keeps staring at me. And then he points his finger at me and says, don't you move. And he goes back into the house. And I know what's happening. He's going in to call the police. And the police are going to come, and they're going to arrest me for stealing money from McDonald's, which ironically will actually happen two years later. But it does not happen on this day. Because when he comes back to the door, he has a $20 bill in his hand, which on this day is like $20,000 to me. And I put my hand out to say, no, that's too much. But he says, no. He tells me that his wife, Lisa, died of cancer five years ago. He tells me he's got two kids living in California and that they came back for the funeral, but he hasn't seen them since. And he starts to tell me about Lisa and how the last two years were the worst. And during that very last year she was alive, he wishes he could have told her to stop fighting, but he loved her too much to ever say those words. And before I know it, I am sitting on the porch with this man and he is weeping and telling me his story of his dead wife and his children who don't visit. And I am sitting there thinking, I am the worst person on the entire planet. We sit there for 20 minutes and he spills his guts to me. And when he's done, he stands up and he hugs me like he hasn't hugged anyone in five years. And he pushes the $20 into my hand and now it's like poison. And I walk away from that man and I get back to my car. I use his money to put gas in my car and I start heading down the road. And as I'm driving, I remember the last moment I was in this car half an hour ago and how I felt so alone and how angry I was that at 19 I didn't have anyone to help me. And now I know I was an idiot. Like how stupid was I? Like I'm going to get home and I'm going to have a bunch of friends and we're going to drink tonight and we're going to have a good time and I'm going to be in the company of people who love me. But that man is going to be back in that house for a long time. That man understands loneliness in a way that I hope I never understand loneliness. And so I leave New Hampshire with that in my heart and a little bit of money from him in my pocket. Thank you. That was good. So That was really interesting. Now, I was riveted. Maybe I wasn't uh, in touch with why I was riveted. But there were little things you built in there that made me come to that conclusion. Like what? So... 
throughout the story, I continually point out what the problem is. I'm reminding you what the problem is to remind you about the stakes. So I'm reminding you at least twice that it's 1991, that there are no cell phones, and that I'm stuck. I'm outlining all of the problems that I'm going to have as I go through. And I keep those in the front of your mind, the tire, the gas, the no money, the no phone. So eventually, I pull into Sitco. And the first thing I do, the first trick I use, is I outline the plan before I go ahead and do it. So I hear storytellers who are not so good. What they would say is, so I pull into Sitco. I get out of the car, and I go into Sitco, and I beg the kid for gas, and he doesn't give it to me. A better version of that story is you let the listener know what the plan is first, because then they have the plan in their mind, and they're going in with you with hope and with wonder and with, like, the promise that perhaps this is the solution, as opposed to the just watching what is happening. Now they're with you. They're on your shoulder, and they know what the goal is. And then it doesn't work out for me. The kid doesn't give me gas. So the first trick is that. You let people know what the plan is before you execute the plan. Well, how often as a storyteller do you allow the audience to uh, get into your mind? And when do you do it? When do you decide to do it? Is it always for a stakes reason? It's almost always for a stakes reason. And it's always one of those moments where something is going to happen that's essentially going to be either a yes or a no. The problem's going to be solved or the problem is not going to be solved. It's going to be one of those moments where everything can change. And Oftentimes, it's moments where everything is not going to change. Those tend to be sort of stale moments, right? If I just say I walk into the sitco station and the kid doesn't give me gas, that's a stale moment. But if I tell you what the plan is before you go in the station with me, it's not stale anymore because you feel like you want it to work just as much as I want it to work, right? Right. So there's a second part, the second part of the plan, which is the McDonald's plan. Right. Same thing happens. Same thing. I see the uniform, and rather than telling you what happens, I say... I see the McDonald's uniform, and I have an idea. Right, and that gives literally, when saying I have an idea, puts you in your head. But when you say you see the McDonald's uniform, we picture the McDonald's uniform. We're looking at it, and we're wondering, okay, how's this going to play into it? And if you didn't do that before, as a storyteller, you know what's in your head, but you don't, maybe the inexperienced storyteller doesn't realize the audience doesn't know what's in your head. So orienting them, taking them along is really impactful. Exactly. And the inexperienced storyteller, for whatever reason, always feels like they want to rush to the moment that, you know, the important moments. And I always say, the closer you get to an important moment in your story, the slower you want to move. Mm -hmm. The more you want the audience to be wondering about that moment until the very last second. So the closer I get to the man and the moment where he tells me that his wife died of cancer, the slower the story becomes. I'm holding as much back as possible. So I don't say... I look at the McDonald's uniform and I have an idea. I'm going to use it to beg for money. Right. That blows everything up, right. right? So I leave it hanging in your head. So you've got this idea in your head that Matt has a plan. It has something to do with McDonald's uniform. And the next moment you see is me on a porch knocking on a blue door with a McDonald's uniform on. Right there, there are some stakes because you can't help but wonder at this point, what is he going to do? Why is he standing on a porch in a McDonald's uniform on a Sunday afternoon? And I emphasize that. I remind you of all of that before we move forward in the story because I want you to have that same wonder that the man will have when the door opens. When that door opens, that man must be wondering, what the hell is this kid doing here? I want to build that wonder into you as well so and that you can experience that. And the other thing is you structured it so we exhale when you get the 20 bucks. 
But it has to end there. That has to be the climax, pretty much. You don't detail about going back or paying the kid at the sitco or actually it actually the only thing you say after the 20 bucks is about your, your the emotions that you feel and comparing it to how alone you were. Right. So I always say that when you've reached that five second moment that we've talked about yes. in your story, at that point, you have said the most important thing that you will ever say in that story. And you must escape the story as quickly as possible. And you see it in movies all the time. You'll be sitting in a movie and the climax has happened. And then for whatever reason, the filmmaker has decided to give us an additional scene. And you sit there wondering, why are we still here? You can see people starting to get up in the movie theater at this moment because they know nothing else that happens after this will be equally important. And so you get out of your story as quickly as possible. So the thing that made that other than something beyond a tale of getting out of a tough situation, you know, with a little bit of uh, an emotional moment that you didn't expect thrown in, was tying it up to... This, I mean, that story could be Matt thought he was alone but realized he didn't know what alone was. My question is, when did you feel that? When did you realize that that was the realization? Did you as a storyteller go back to this crazy thing that happened and said, well, what was the bigger lesson? And you realized it 20 years after? Or did you realize it on the way home and is one legit and one not? Right. For that one in particular, I remember that the moment I realized it was when I was drinking with my buddies that night. Okay. And I was with a bunch of guys, and I thought about the man and how he doesn't have that. But there are moments when uh, something happens in my life, and I don't realize sort of what my storytelling arc is going to be until 20 years later when I'm trying to figure the story out. That is an off, often the case. There's a story that I tell where I die in a car accident. And for a long time, I thought the story was going to be Matt goes through a windshield, he dies on the side of the road, the paramedics bring him back to life. That sounds like a potential for a good story, but yeah. in truth, it's not, because nothing happens other than I would die and get brought back to life. Yes. Your beginning status is your end status. So really, nothing really happens. Right. There's no arc. And there's no yeah. connection. Like, there's not often when someone can say, I remember the time I died on the side of the road. Yes, yeah. I'm connecting with you. So I wasn't able to tell that story for years until I recalled, until I sort of brought it into focus. Later on, when I'm in the emergency room, my parents don't come to the emergency room before I end up in surgery. Right. They hear that I'm stable, and so they go to check out the car. And it's another moment where I sort of feel alone, and I can see it in the nurse's eyes that where the hell is this kid's parents? And then I hear my friends out in the waiting room, and my friends are starting to gather. I actually had the nurse call McDonald's to tell them I wasn't going to make it to my shift that night, <laughs> even though I was dead half an hour before. And she does. And so the manager tells my friends, and an old-fashioned phone tree begins. And the waiting room fills up with kids making like loud and inappropriate noises. But it's the moment in my life when I realize I do have a family. And it's not the people who gave birth to me, but it's those kids in the lobby who came two days before Christmas and will spend the next week in my room with me every minute of the day. But I don't realize that until 20 years later, yeah. you know, until I start to think about how I want to frame the story. It's just a story about me dying on the side of the road. So in that story, you said, ironically, two years later, I will be arrested for stealing from McDonald's. Do you say that on stage or is that just too weird a thing to you? You told me that because I know what's going on. But do you say that part when you tell the story? I do. And it actually <laughs> violates a rule of mine yeah. that I have because it references a time period that I'm not currently in. Yeah. You know, I believe that we've talked about maintaining this bubble and I need to keep you in this 1991 bubble at all times. 
it's one of the only times I ever violate this rule where I jump out of time, but it always gets an enormous laugh. Yeah, it's just too good. And it's yeah. also, there's moments where there's so much tension in a story that you have to almost give your audience a laugh, like it's a breath before you're going to come back. Because I know I'm about to come back and hit them hard with the idea that this poor guy died of cancer. So I want them to laugh before they cry because it is always better to make people laugh before you make them cry because it hurts more that way. So it's there to sort of release tension right before I hit tension again. Thank you, Matthew Dix, storyteller extraordinaire, teller of stories about stories. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Mike. If you're looking to diversify your portfolio with real estate, look no further than RealtyShares.com at RealtyShares.com slash gist. RealtyShares is an online real estate investment marketplace that allows accredited investors to invest as little as $1,000 per transaction in residential and commercial real estate projects across the United States. Thousands of investors use the platform to invest in real estate deals that are sourced and vetted by experienced investment professionals. You can browse and invest in minutes all from your computer. Go to RealtyShares.com gist to create your free account today. And now the spiel, who dat? It was a raucous at times, cacophonous debate over at CNBC last night. Rocophonous. It was the least watched of the three Republican debates, less watched than the Democratic debate also, but it did set a ratings record for CNBC. They put that fact in a press release. The ratings record beat what exactly? Cisco Systems announces a buyback after third quarter profits were in line with estimates? Actually... And I did make that hilarious joke on Twitter. Follow me at Pescame. Sorry to recycle here. But I began to think about it a little more. And I bet the previous highest rated CNBC show was, in fact, Donald Trump's Apprentice. That was on CNBC. A lot of the CNBC shows, when you think about it, could describe this or a Republican debate. Squawk Box, Power Lunch, Mad Money, or even the infomercials about fantasy football. They show up too. Another odd thing that showed up was something I wanted to talk about. You could hear it here from the mouth of John Kasich. I'm the only one on the stage that has a plan that would create jobs. Want another shot to figure out what I'm talking about? Here's Marco Rubio. We have a world that's out of control and has grown dangerous and a president that is weakening our military. You got it? Saying that instead of who. The person who. The president who. The senator who. Well, they're looking for a senator that will fight for them each and every day. Nope. Wrong. Should be the Democrat, heck, the Republican who. Instead, he says. Heck, if I'm a Republican in Congress that would cut spending $10. Almost every candidate made the mistake from the laggards to the leaders. I never said that. I never said that. Oh, yes, you did, Mr. Trump. And I can prove it. This is the man that was a managing general partner at Lehman Brothers. See, you can't deny that. But I'm the only one that can say that. No, no. Everyone said it. Everyone except Ben Carson and Carly Fiorina. Rubio said it the most. You know, a lot of business activity in America is conducted like the guy that does my dry cleaning. In fact, Rubio also said that not just when he should have said who, but one time when he should have said where. We own a home four blocks away from the place that I grew up in. Not a level with you. I am a person. I bet you are this kind of person, too. Who sometimes says that instead of who? I'm also a person who says who. More than that, I hope, and I'm cognizant of it. I'm not a persnickety grammarian. It's a normal part of speech. We all flub it. But I have this crazy theory. I got to thinking about this. I think that it just may be the case that even though it's unconscious, 
It's more likely that we'll say who correctly. We'll say who about a person when we actually think of them as an actual person, a person with feelings. And we say that when we think about, though it's technically a person we're talking about, but we think about an institution like a senator or a president. It's sort of distancing to say that. There are exceptions. A lot of these candidates said that when talking about themselves. But if you want someone who has a proven, effective leadership that was a governor of a state that transformed the culture. But I do think who is subconsciously more personal, and I do think we know it. When Bob Dylan is angry at a woman, he hurls a that. But when he's being tender, he uses who. You know I want to Think about a funeral. Do you talk about the deceased as the guy that brought down communism or? Ronald Reagan was a president who inspired his nation. During the debate, the candidates were saying, this is a president that is weakening the military. But once you've become president and once someone is trying to say something nice about you in a eulogy, you rate a who. When I joined Gerald Ford as a member of Congress in 1962, I found a skillful legislator who had earned the respect of his colleagues. Of course, those eulogies, they were written down. So let's take something that's more like a debate, where you think about it beforehand, but you're actually mostly going without notes, the Academy Awards. I read through some transcripts of Academy Awards speeches, and when they think about the person as a person, I find that they say who. Like when Patricia Arquette won, here's who she thanked. To my heroes, volunteers, and experts who've helped me bring ecological sanitation to the developing world with givelove.org. She could have easily said volunteers and experts that have helped me bring ecological sanitation, but she said who? Maybe it's just that actresses, like here, Kate Blanchett, are trained in diction and rhetoric. And to the audiences who went to see it, and perhaps those of us in the industry who are still foolishly clinging to the And idea. since we're at the Academy... Why not play Ruth Gordon winning for Rosemary's Baby? Thank you, Roman, and thank you, Mia. And thank all of you who voted for me, and all of you who didn't, please excuse me. I do get the feeling that a presidential candidate who got all the votes of those who say that would outpoll a candidate who got the voters who say who. That's not right. That is absolutely not right. Oh, it is right, Mr. Trump. You're the kind of guy who should know that. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has a very compelling position paper on her website, GoSalenzi.org. It's about the advisability of hitting a soft 16 against the dealer's six. Executive producer Andy Bowers wants Mousetrap classified as a game of skill, not a game of chance. The gist, my solemn vow. I will not bore you with a recitation of my wide receivers. But if I tell you about my outfield, can I count on your vote? Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening.